It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense. All in more or less plain English. Podcast number 784 for the 18th of March, 2022. This week, we'll revisit the process of converting film negatives to digital images, but this time the main focus, sorry about that, is medium format film. Even if you don't have any medium format negatives lying around, there is information that works for 35mm negatives too. In short circuits, are you frustrated by Windows 11's inability to display the day on the taskbar? Well, surprise, you can restore the day name if you want to, and it's easy. If crooks can associate a SIM card they have access to with your phone, they can drain your bank account. This is a good problem to avoid. And 20 years ago, nobody had a GPS unit in their pocket in 2002, but direction-finding applications were beginning to appear. Scanning old film can be challenging, but the process becomes much more difficult when the film is some size other than the 35mm film used in dozens of brands of cameras from as early as 1913. Leica introduced its rangefinder 35mm cameras in 1925, and the size became a standard by the 1930s. The good news is that scanning larger or smaller negatives can be simplified if you have a digital camera. I've been digitizing old film images for more than a year, but I hadn't had much success with 120 roll film. Until now. Even if you have no medium format film around the house, stick with me for a bit because this process will work for 35mm film too, or 110 film, or any other size of film. In early February, I wrote about digitizing and sharing old photos, videos, home movies, and other media you might have around the house. I had paid to have some slides digitized, but I've been scanning 35mm film negatives myself with a scanner that's built to scan 35mm negatives and slides. The slide scanning operation was sufficiently difficult that having the process done commercially made sense, particularly because there were only a couple of thousand slides. But I have many thousands of negatives, and a lot of them are medium format film. Medium format film is also known as 120 and 220 roll film. Uh, 120 roll has a capacity of 12 6 centimeter square images, and the film has a backing paper. A 220 roll doubles the number of images, and there is no backing paper. Depending on the camera, the images can be 6x4.5, 6x6, 6x7 or 6 by 9 centimeters. The problem with larger film is that few digitizing services work with it. I sent some test strips to a digitizing service that promised to do the job, but the cost was high, the wait was long, and the results were beyond disappointing. What was more frustrating was that I knew I already had most of what's needed to digitize film with a digital SLR camera, but the process was elusive. I also have a flatbed scanner, and some flatbed scanners can be used with film. Scanners such as the Epson Perfection Photo Series have a backlight unit that shines light through the film instead of using the reflective light 
intended for scans of paper objects. One problem is that the film holders made by Epson seem to be designed to be exercises in frustration. But that's only the starting point. Flatbed scanners really aren't intended to be used as film scanners. But I persisted. A Lomography film scanning mask seemed to be a good solution. The design makes loading film relatively easy, and the device holds film in place using magnets. The problem was that it doesn't work with my Epson Perfection 3200 photo scanner, despite the claim that it works with all modern flatbed scanners with a backlight unit. However, if you plan to scan film using a digital SLR camera, buy one of these. There's also a model for 35mm film and another for 110 film, those little tiny negatives. The Lomography frame might have worked in my scanner if I'd been willing to use Epson's scanning software, but I prefer ViewScan. Any film scan from a flatbed scanner will be mediocre at best, so maybe I should be grateful that this didn't work. The Lomography film scanning mask sells for about $50. I already had a light box that produces daylight quality light, a digital SLR camera that can save negatives in raw mode, a 100mm macro lens, and a sturdy tripod. Attempts to create a frame that would hold roll film had been unsuccessful. Film curls a bit and it needs to be held flat. Using two sheets of glass would hold the film flat, but often creates what are called Newton's rings, the result of reflections between two surfaces. The Lomography frame eliminated the Newton's rings effect, but taking a picture of a negative still creates a negative image in which all of the colors are reversed and the image has a strong orange cast. Fixing this seemed like it should be easy, but it wasn't easy in practice. The process begins by being deceptively easy. The imported photo of the negative shows reversed colors and the typical orange cast associated with the negatives. The tone curve is standard, rising from left to right. Changing the image to a positive simply involves reversing the tone curve so that it rises from right to left. That still leaves a blue cast, though, which is the result of reversing the orange cast from the negative. The process continues to appear easy after setting a white point for the image to drop out the orange cast, but the resulting image's contrast is low. Normally this would be corrected using Lightroom's basic editing tools, and that's where the process breaks down. Because the underlying raw image is a negative, all of the controls work in reverse, or in other unexpected ways. Increasing exposure darkens the image. Increasing contrast decreases contrast. Increasing highlights or whites makes them darker, and decreasing shadows or blacks makes them lighter. Most people could learn to deal with those oddities, but the controls for texture, clarity, dehazing, vibrance, and saturation are simply confusing. And the controls for temperature and tint are all but impossible. That's where a $100 plug-in for Lightroom Classic saves the day. Negative Lab Pro eliminates the frustrations and creates clear, sharp images from negatives. The plug-in's controls can be used to further adjust the resulting images. So what do you need and how does this work? Well, you'll need a camera, of course. It doesn't really matter whether it's a digital SLR or a mirrorless camera, but it does need the ability to store images in RAW mode, and it should have an option for interchangeable lenses. 
Speaking of lenses, avoid zoom lenses for this kind of work. You want a lens that will focus sharply, corner to corner, on a flat subject. My preference is a 100mm Canon macro lens, but that is an expensive lens. Fortunately, I had bought one a few decades ago, so I didn't need to spend money on a new one. Some third-party lenses will work, too, and save you quite a bit of money, and a 50mm macro lens will cost less. The third alternative would be a non-macro prime lens that can focus close. Zoom lenses, as I said, should be avoided. It's possible to find excellent used older macro lenses that can be fitted to modern cameras, but they can be used only in fully manual mode. That's fine, though, and I'll explain why in just a moment. This is not a task that can be done with a handheld camera, so you'll need a sturdy tripod or a copy stand. I already had an antique Bogan 3021 tripod that can be set up with the camera head on the bottom. If you don't have a tripod and expect never to use one, a copy stand would be probably the better choice, but check the weight of your camera and make sure the stand is rated for the appropriate weight. You'll need a light source that provides daylight balanced light. The 12 by 9 inch Artograph LightPad 930LX sells for around $170 but the 9x6-inch model is less than $120. It's adequate unless you want to view film stored in transparent binder pages or place a lot of individual negatives in sleeves on the light source. To avoid problems caused by light leaking around the film frame, you could use a piece of black foam core board with an opening cut so that it covers everything except the part of the frame where the negative is. I started with a piece of plain cardboard, but moved up to black foam core board because it simply works better. If you're working near a window, as I am, either work at night or find a way to block the light from the window. A 32 by 40 inch piece of foam core board will cost about 20 bucks, and that's what I'm using. And you'll want to work in a fairly dimly lighted room, too, to avoid having light fall on the face of the negative. And have a small level around so you can confirm that the camera is level front to back and side to side. The depth of field is limited. So once you get everything set up, it's time to adjust the camera, and camera settings are critical to the process. I'll run through the settings I use and explain why I've selected them. Some of the settings are based on the light table. Mine produces 5,000 lux at 6,500 degrees Kelvin, and I run the light at full brightness. Your situation, and therefore your settings, may differ. I use manual mode. You want full control over the aperture, shutter speed, and ISO. Given the light's output of 5000 lux, I've determined that 1 60th of a second shutter speed at f8 and ISO 400 works well. The settings that work for you will depend on tests you perform to determine the best compromise. And everything in photography is compromise. Shutter speed 1 60th? Higher would be better, but the camera's on a tripod, so camera movement isn't a significant concern. Aperture f8. Most lenses are sharpest at f8 or f11. I chose f8 so that I could keep an acceptably high shutter speed and an acceptably low ISO. ISO 400? The camera I use produces virtually no luminance noise at ISO 400. I could push it to 800 without worrying too much, or I could set it at 100 for the least possible noise, but then I'd have to use less optimal shutter and aperture settings. 
Daylight color balance. The light source is daylight, so setting daylight manually eliminates any errors that might be introduced by the camera's automatic white balance. I also set a two-second shutter delay. Even when the camera is on a tripod, pressing the shutter release can cause some motion. A two-second delay is sufficient for the camera to settle before the image is captured. And I use the camera's RAW mode. The entire point of the process, after all, is to obtain the best negative quality. Giving Lightroom and Negative Lab Color the full raw image means your resulting digital images will be the best they can be. Once you've collected the negatives to be digitized, load them into the scanning mask and photograph each with the camera. Make at least one exposure that shows a significant bit of the orange area between frames. You'll need that for setting a white point later. And before you photograph the negatives, use a brush or an air bulb to get as much dust off the negatives as you can. I usually digitize just one or two rolls of film at a time so that I can catch anything that's gone wrong and correct it before spending several hours on work that'll need to be repeated. Checking camera settings and being careful will usually eliminate errors, though. And so far, I've not had to redo any work. Import your images into Lightroom Classic or Lightroom 6, rotate them as needed, select all of the images, and switch to Develop Mode. Then use the White Balance Eyedropper to sample the blank orange area you captured earlier to apply the correct white point setting to each image. And before you open Digital Lab Pro, crop and straighten the images in Lightroom. Then with all of the images still selected and Lightroom Classic in Develop Mode, start Digital Lab Pro. Choose the appropriate conversion settings for source, color mode, presaturation, and border buffer, and then click the Convert button. And by appropriate conversion settings, I mean you'll have to do some experimentation and decide which settings you prefer. Digital Lab Pro analyzes each image and replaces the negative images in the film strip with positive images. At this point, you have a choice. Continue editing the photo in Digital Lab Pro or create a positive copy for editing in Lightroom. Creating a positive copy for Lightroom makes tools such as masking available, but there is a significant downside. A raw image that's less than 30 megabytes will be converted to a TIFF image that's six times that size. So unless you need access to features that aren't present in Digital Lab Pro, it's better not to create a positive copy. When brightness, contrast, and color are the way you want them, apply the changes and then return to Lightroom to fix blemishes, dust spots, and other imperfections. There's no need to create a positive copy for these tasks. You can fix blemishes and dust spots on the modified RAW file. Just avoid touching the other controls. And the final step, if you want to share the images, involves exporting files in whatever size and formats the recipients need. For more information about Digital Lab Pro, visit the company's website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. You can download a fully functional version of the application, but it will process only one dozen negatives. After that, you do need to pay 99 bucks to unlock it permanently. Versions are available for Windows and the Mac OS, and you'll need either the current version of Lightroom Classic or Lightroom 6. Note that some functions work only in Lightroom Classic CC, not in the older Lightroom 6. Digital Lab Pro can be installed on up to two computers. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, 
and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, count me as one of the people who would really like Microsoft to fix the Windows 11 taskbar. The new taskbar looks like it's been stolen from Apple. Now, that isn't necessarily bad, but it's also not exactly good. Windows 10 allowed me to use small icons and set up more than a single row. That's helpful because I like to have access to a lot of applications. The computer is used for email, web browsing, website design, audio development, word processing, spreadsheet, plain text editing, photo and video editing, scanning, ebook management, access to OneDrive and Google Drive, PDF creation and manipulation, streaming video management, podcast creation and other audio editing, Skype and Zoom conferences, and document preparation for publishing. I also keep a dozen or so utility programs on the taskbar, or I did in Windows 10. That's not possible with Windows 11, but the start menu has been improved, so I can live with it. But I do miss having the day name in the notification area. In Windows 10, my two-deck taskbar allowed three lines of text, time, day, and date. In Windows 11, there are just two lines, time and date. Now, it's unlikely that I'll forget what day it is, but I liked having the information there. Fortunately, there's a quick and easy fix that also works with Windows 10 if you use just a single deck in the taskbar. Adding the three-letter abbreviation for the day requires that you edit your computer's region settings. Press the Windows key and R to launch the Run window, then type intl.cpl and press Enter to launch the Regional Settings control. Click Additional Settings at the bottom of the window and then add DDD colon in front of the short date format. You can add a space following the colon if you want a bit of space between the day abbreviation and the date. Then click the Apply or OK button to apply the new settings and you'll see the day abbreviation on the line with the date. Memo to Microsoft. Many of the Windows 11 changes are good, but must you remove popular capabilities from Windows 10? <music> Nearly everyone has a mobile phone. A SIM card inside the phone links the device to you, but what if somebody could associate your phone with their SIM card? Sounds like bad news. The card itself may be a fingernail-sized piece of plastic, or it might be part of the phone's internal circuitry. SIM is shorthand for Subscriber Identification Module, and if your phone becomes associated with another SIM, your bank account could be drained. Between January 2018 and December 2020, $12 million were lost this way. Crooks target the carriers and mobile phone owners with a variety of techniques to accomplish the SIM switch, which doesn't require physical access to the phone. The FBI says that mobile phone users should avoid talking about their assets, investments, or cryptocurrency on social media, 
Well, that should be obvious. If someone asks for your mobile phone number or password or PIN via online chat or phone call, refuse to provide it. Instead, contact the company that supposedly needs to verify your identity. And watch for changes in SMS connections. Use multi-factor authentication whenever possible. Sounds like just standard security to me. And if you think a crook has taken control of your phone, start by contacting the cellular service provider to regain control of the phone, change all passwords associated with any sensitive data, contact your financial institutions to alert them, and then contact law enforcement. How did we ever figure out where we were going in 2002? 20 years ago, direction finding was just beginning to come to portable devices. Check out 20 years ago on the TechBiter Worldwide website and remember the limitations. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session.